Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. everyone. Thank you so much for joining for episode number three. This one is a very interesting case that I actually discovered through YouTube. So if you're a true crime fan like myself, I'm sure you've spent many, many hours late into the night looking at different crimes on YouTube, on Wikipedia, on Murderpedia, just going through the internet and kind of combing through different cases. And this one, like I said, was something I found on YouTube. And in particular, it's the suspect's interrogation video that drew me in. Uh, The thumbnail actually had an image of her face and she just looked crazy. So obviously we'll cover that a little bit later on. But anyway, that's how I discovered it. One of the sources that I used, and I used quite a few, but one in particular that I wanted to mention was an article in LA Magazine called In Plain Sight. And this was written by Stephen Michelon in September of 2012, which was after I believe the sentencing had occurred. So anyway, it's a not not terribly old case, so a little bit more recent, but um, the actual crime occurred much earlier. So let's dive right in. This is the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. In 1986, Los Angeles crime was on the upswing. On February 24th that year, John Rutten, a handsome newly married engineer, returned home from work. As he pulled up to his Van Nuys condominium on Balboa, he noticed that his bride's engagement present, a 1985 BMW, was missing. This was odd. Sherry was staying home from work to nurse an exercise-induced back injury as a result of an aerobic exercise. She also wanted to avoid having to give an HR pep talk that day. This was something she dreaded. John had called the house at one point, but Sherry didn't answer, so he assumed that she ended up going into the office. But when he called her office, her secretary said that she hadn't come in that day. He called the house a few more times, but was unable to reach her. As he walked into their home from the garage, he noticed his wife lying on the ground wearing her bathrobe and camisole. It didn't register immediately, but the crime scene was brutal. There was blood all over the carpet and walls. Sherry's face was badly beaten, and there was evidence that she had been restrained at the wrists. She had also been shot three times at close range, twice in the upper torso and once in the abdomen, with 38 caliber bullets. According to LA Times reporter Joel Rubin, there were indications of a prolonged struggle. There's indications that Sherry's wrists had been bound. A porcelain vase had been broken over Sherry's head prior to the shooting. There was a bloody handprint next to the burglar alarm's panic button in a toppled credenza. It appeared that someone had attempted to bind her and that she had defensive wounds and a bruise on her face. That bruise appeared to have been inflicted by the muzzle of a gun. The gun had been fired through a quilted blanket, apparently to muffle the sound. Later on, a a witness who was a maid that was working in another condo at the time didn't hear gunshots but did hear yelling. 
The investigating criminalist also observed a bite mark on Sherry's arm and took a swab from it. Let's talk a little bit about the victim. Sherry Ray Rasmussen was born on February 7, 1957, to Nels and Loretta Rasmussen. So she clearly just had her birthday, which is horrible. She was the middle child of three daughters, part of a very close-knit family. Her sister, Teresa, recalls that Sherry was the glue that had held the family together and was the one who made everything that much better. Her parents adored her and said that she excelled at pretty much everything she did, and this is evidenced by the fact that she entered college at the age of 16. Um, She attended Loma Linda University and became a nurse at the young age of 20, which is extremely impressive. Seven years later, at the age of 27, she was promoted to Director of Critical Nursing at the Glendale Adventist Medical Center. She was absolutely stunning, both inside and out, and you can see pictures of her. I'll post on the Instagram and Facebook page, but you can search images of her. She had a wonderful smile and just a lovely, lovely, bright face. John was stunned to find his wife of three months in such a condition, of course, Teresa said that he was in a daze and had a deer-in-the-headlights look. John and Sherry had met back in 1984 in June at a party. He had studied mechanical engineering at UCLA and participated regularly in intramural basketball. He was 6'3", so that makes sense. He lived in Dykstra Hall, which was known actually as the sporty dorm on campus, so very active guy. And I will be honest, he is extremely handsome. One of the articles, I believe it was the LA Magazine article, mentioned how he had TV handsome looks, and that is absolutely true. I kind of, I'm trying to think of what maybe celebrity he kind of reminds me of. He gives me a little bit Anthony Perkins vibes, but not as creepy. And Anthony Perkins, if people don't know, he was the star of Psycho. So I guess that's not a great example, but that's the first thing that I could think of. Um, Anyway. Detectives on the scene theorized that it was a robbery gone awry. A stereo and its components were stacked by the door as if to be carried out. Lead detective Lyle Mayer was convinced two male illegal aliens were the culprits. There was little forensic forensic evidence available, though a bite mark, as I said, on Sherry's arm was swabbed for saliva. After Sherry's murder, John sort of faded from the investigation. Meanwhile, her father, Nels, especially was involved and told detectives about an alarming story that his daughter had shared with him only weeks before her wedding. Sherry had told her parents that in late 1985, she was getting weird phone calls and visits from an ex of John's. She had been, according to Nels, she had been at the house at least three times referring to the Balboa Boulevard condo. Sherry described one time when John's ex brought over her snow skis to have John wax them. Sherry left and went into another room while the two of them talked. Later, when the woman returned to get the skis, Sherry told her she didn't want her to come back to the house. And who can blame her? That is very ballsy. She also told her father that the ex-girlfriend had shown up at her work, dressed provocatively, and told her, quote, If I can't have John, nobody will. She felt like she was being followed by someone in disguise that had wild eyes, and she told some of her colleagues that this woman would just appear at the store in the gym where Sherry went, so she was very fearful and unhappy. She also had a suspicion that John and this woman were still involved romantically. It had gotten so bad that she strongly considered breaking up with John. 
John and the Rasmussens told detectives early on in the investigation to talk to this woman, but they were convinced of the robbery gone awry. This is also bolstered by a fact that nearby a similar crime was perpetrated by two men. A few days after the actual slaying of Sherry, these two men had robbed a woman at gunpoint. And a few months after the murder, they held another unsuspecting woman at gunpoint after she walked into a break-in. This woman's house was just a few blocks away from John and Sherry's home. They were described as Latinos between 5 feet 4 inches and 5 feet 6 inches tall. They therefore emerged as the primary suspects in Rasmussen's death, but they were never found. Sherry's BMW was actually found not long after, maybe a week or so after the murder, parked not too far from her condo. The keys were in ignition and the doors were unlocked. So already, the whole idea of a burglary, it's kind of confusing. Why would they not have kept the BMW? And if they were just stacking stereo components and other items near the front of the door, like why wouldn't they have taken them with them? I mean, if Sherry was dead, they would have no one to have stopped them. So that's a little odd. After Sherry's murder, John had little to say publicly. He briefly addressed mourners at a hospital memorial service for Sherry, telling them, quote, I just want to thank you all for coming, and I want you to know that Sherry was the best professional in the world. She was the best wife that anyone could ever have. Nels pushed Detective Mayer to speak with John's ex-girlfriend still, but was dismissed and actually told to stop watching so much television. Nels wrote letters to the head of police department at the time, Daryl Gates. His pleas for the department to take a second look at the case went unheeded, and after five years, he gave up. One of Sherry's friends, Jane Goldberg, said, I would have expected that John would have been much more involved in the investigation and demand answers. He should have been her advocate. She would have been his. Why why wasn't he camped outside the police station? I don't understand it. It would take 23 more years before the truth came out. Now let's talk a little bit about John's ex-girlfriend. Stephanie Eileen Lazarus had been in elementary school when her family moved from Inglewood to Simi Valley at the start of the 1970s. Her brother Stephen says that they were never deprived, but they were of lower middle class. In 2009, Stephanie was a well-respected veteran female LAPD officer. In the course of her career, she became involved with the Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program, also known as D.A.R.E. Does everyone remember that? I do. And I'm pretty sure it didn't work. I'm not speaking for myself, but just in general, not sure that it worked. But such was the time in the 90s, so. She had also served as treasurer for the Los Angeles Women Police Officers Association for five years. She helped fundraise. She provided round-the-clock child care for parents who worked on the force. She went on to start her own private investigation firm as well called Unique Investigations. In 1987, she earned medals, including one gold at the World Police and Fire Games in San Diego. In 1993, she became a detective. By 2009, she had been promoted to high-profile, high-stakes art theft detail, which tracks stolen art and art forgeries. She was even featured as the head with the head of her department in an LA Weekly's annual LA People issue. 
She told the paper that working the art beat inspired her to become an artist and she'd been taking oil painting classes. She had also married a fellow police officer and adopted a little girl. Additionally, she overcame thyroid cancer, so pretty incredible person, so it seems. But in 1986, she was a beat cop on the force for two years after having graduated from, what else, UCLA. At that point, she was also struggling personally. She wrote in her diary, quote, I found out that John is getting married. I was very depressed. That John? None other than John Rutten. In the late 1990s, after DNA testing had become more prominent, LAPD formed a new unit that looked through forensic evidence collected from cold cases to determine whether any had the potential for new leads through DNA testing. It was not until 2004 that criminalist Jennifer Francis was able to analyze the DNA from Sherry's case. This included the swab taken from the bite mark on her forearm. Some of the evidence from the Rasmussen case, including that which may have contained the suspect's DNA, was missing, having been collected in 1993 by another detective. Unfortunately, Francis did not find any matches in the system, but did find that the saliva in it had come from a female. In looking at the Rasmussen case file, she saw a report of a third-party female who had allegedly harassed the victim shortly before her death. When she asked a supervising detective if this woman had been looked into, he replied with, quote, Oh, you mean the LAPD detective? She's not a part of this. He reasserted that it was a burglary and back onto the shelf it went. In February 2009, when the cold case squad, with time on its hands due to the dwindling number of murders in the area, reopened some additional cases. Investigators once again ran DNA tests on all of the old evidence, including the bite marks on Rasmussen's body. The testing revealed that the suspect had to be a woman, which once again undermined Detective Mayer's long-held theory of the robbery by two Hispanic men. Finally, these two detectives, Jim Natal and Pete Barba, concluded that this couldn't have been a robbery, but they did feel it was a staged one. Their investigation brought forward five female subjects. They were down to the last two eventually. One was a colleague of Sherry's with whom she had some disputes, and the other, Stephanie Lazarus. This colleague was not a match. Stephanie Lazarus was quite literally across the hall from them. They surreptitiously obtained a DNA sample from a discarded soda cup and a straw after a day of surveilling Lazarus. Guess what? It was a match. And there is a 1.7 sextillion to one chance that it belongs to somebody else. So I would say pretty strong evidence. It was uncovered that Lazarus had called the Santa Monica Police Department a few weeks after Sherry's murder to report that her car had been broken into near the Santa Monica Pier. In addition to a stolen gym bag, money, and clothes, she reported that her 38 caliber handgun was missing. On June 5, 2009, at about 4 a.m., dozens of LAPD members met about the arrest operation. They had to handle her arrest with care as she was one of their own, and she was armed. One veteran officer told the Los Angeles Times, quote, Never in my wildest imagination would I ever think she could do something like this. We drank beers. She was always quick to give you a hug or tell a joke. She had been described as bubbly and vivacious. 
She was the type who made homemade soaps and chocolate-covered cherries to give to her neighbors for Christmas. But other details about Lazarus began to appear on the internet. She was nicknamed Spaz or Spazarus for her erratic behavior when she became flustered and angry. Remember that. That morning, as Lazarus boarded the train to work that day, a disguised detective followed her while plainclothes officers seized her computers and journals at her home. Around 6.30 a.m. that same morning, Detective Daniel Jaramillo from Robbery Homicide approached her as she settled in. He said that he needed her to question a suspect involved in potential art theft. He told her the interrogation room near the Parker Center's jail, and the Parker Center, so you know, is the LAPD headquarters, was where the individual was waiting. She could not bring her firearm in. Once inside the interrogation room, she was greeted by Detective Greg Stearns. And here's where the YouTube video comes in, and I highly recommend that you watch it. But, uh, like we're talking about being busy and stuff, we've been assigned a case that we've been looking at. Okay. okay. It's a new case, and as we're doing the case, there's some notes uh, to see that, as far as your name being mentioned. Do oh, you, okay. Do you know John Rutten? John Rutten? Rutten. Oh, yeah, I went to school with him. You did? Yeah. How long did you know him? Gosh, I went to school in, um, let's see, went to UCLA in 1978, I started, and, um, you know, met him at school at the dorms. Mm -hmm. um, were you guys friends, close friends? Yeah, we're very close friends. I yeah. Mean, I mean, what's this all about? Well, it's regarding... It's a case we're working on, and it involves John, and in there, some of the statements we, we reviewed, uh, you know, there's notes and stuff that he, that he knew you and stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, we good friends. Um, lived in the dorms for... I lived in the dorms for two years. Um, you guys lived in the same dorm? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, Dijkstra. Okay. Were you guys just friends or anything else, or...? Yeah, we were... We were Good friends. Yeah. Was there ever any relationship or anything that developed between you guys? Yeah, I mean, we dated. Uh-huh. Uh you know, um, I mean, is, what's this all about? Well, it's relating to uh, his wife. So, Artie, you can tell that she's caught off guard big time. I mean, she's stuttering. She is kind of grasping at straws. I mean, this was her second longest relationship in her entire life outside of her husband and she's just like beating around the bush saying yeah I knew him you know I can't even remember when but blah 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 so you know not looking so great for her so far let's listen to a little more okay okay did you know her not really I mean I knew that he got married years ago uh-huh did you ever meet her god I don't know um do you know who she was or anything well I let me think God, it's been a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I may have met her. Jeez. Um, uh, well, let me see. Let me ask you. You said you, you dated John. How long did you guys date? I mean, what well, are you guys? Is this something? Mm -hmm. I started UCLA in 1978. Mm -hmm. I graduated in '82. Um, I don't even remember what year he graduated. If it was. A year or two before me. Okay. Um, I think he was a little bit older than I was. Okay. I mean, you know, I can't remember if he was born. Let's. Um, I don't even remember what year he graduated. If it was a year or two before me. Okay. Um, I think he was a little bit older than I was. Okay. I mean, you know, I can't remember if he was born. Let's see, I was born in sixty, nineteen sixty. I don't know if he was born in fifty-eight or fifty-nine. I mean, I, you know, um, I mean, I knew his parents. I knew his sister. His brother went to Northridge. Mm -hmm. um, 
Um, hey, Stephanie, what do you remember about John? Weren't you really depressed when he got engaged? Seems like you don't remember a lot. And also, who cares when he graduated, really? What ended the relationship between you and John? You know, I don't... It was kind of a weird relationship. I mean, we we, we dated. Um, I can't say that he was my boyfriend. I don't know that he would consider me his girlfriend. Um, we just, we dated. We did things. I played sports in college. He played basketball. His brother played basketball. Um... We just, you know, it just didn't work out. Sorry, again, why are you talking about John's brother playing basketball when the detectives are asking you, how did the relationship end? Well, after he hooked up with uh, with Sherry, do you know uh, where they were living? <laughs> no, you asked me that already. Uh-huh. And I said, well, obviously, you were living in Van Nuys Division. Yeah. <laughs> um, I may have known. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, again, I, you know, did he ever give me the address? I, I, maybe. You know, I don't remember. I mean, I don't know. Because the only reason I'm asking you again is because we've been talking. I know some stuff has come to you because you're like, oh, it's like <laughs> You know, so. I don't think I've ever gone there. That's what I'm saying. I don't. I don't want to say, no, I've never gone there, and then you say, oh, I was at a party. Because I, 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 I don't, th- you know, I don't think so. Yeah. You know, we had read the notes as far as from uh, Sherry's friend saying you, you guys had problems or words, and they got heated. You know, and the reason we're asking you is they had mentioned that an incident at her work had occurred, and uh, they've also told us that an incident at her house occurred. You know what? And this is at her house during the period of time that they're married. <laughs> That's just not sounding familiar at all. No. I mean, I, you know what? I. That's just not sound. I, 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 again, if someone says that I was at her house and I had an incident with her, I, I, you know, I that just doesn't sound. I, 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 you know, was John there? Did John say this happened because, and other people were there? I, I, I just I don't recall. Okay, Stephanie, I think you have the most convenient amnesia I've ever heard of. I don't recall any situation in my entire life, not that I've had many, where I had a verbal altercation with somebody and I wouldn't remember that to this day. It just doesn't happen. Give me a break. She has the craziest facial expressions and I will be sure to post a few thumbnails from that, but you can tell she's like, oh, oh, I'm in big trouble here. Eventually exasperated, Stephanie leaves the interrogation room only to be arrested immediately by detectives outside of the room. She's read her Miranda rights and just appears completely appalled and shocked that she could possibly be considered a suspect in the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. But again, and there's some interesting other YouTube videos where people sort of break down her reactions. I mean, she is, she wins the Razzie Award for Worst Actress Ever. I mean, the amount of stuttering, the -the over-the-top facial expressions. I mean, this harkens back to the fact that her nickname was Spazarus because clearly when she gets flustered, she's just all over the damn place. And, you know, if anyone was just to look at that video, they'd say, oh, my gosh, of course she's guilty because she just does not handle her stuff well. And this is somebody, she 
was absolutely in love with. I mean, there were diary entries about it. She went to Hawaii with this guy, and then she acts like he was barely a stranger, barely an acquaintance, rather. Um, So it's just, it's not looking great for her. So, and the whole, you know, the tangents that she goes on being like, what year was it? And, you know, in college, I was doing this sport. And just, it simply is just, she could not give a straight answer if her life depended on it. So, Yeah, I think they did a great job as far as interrogating her, and that certainly does not look too good. The trial began in early 2012. John Taylor, the Rasmussen's attorney, said, DNA profiling technology absolutely nails her as the defendant. Lazarus's attorney, Mark Overland, claimed that the envelope holding the swab had been misplaced for a long time, possibly years, but eventually it was found in the L.A. County coroner's office. Therefore, it was tainted. The case against Lazarus came down to, quote, a bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart, said Deputy District Attorney Shannon Presby in his opening statement. Presby and co-counsel Paul Nunes sought to hammer home these points throughout the five-week trial in which more than 60 witnesses testified and 400 exhibits were presented from the state and the defense. John Rutten's sister, Gail Lopez, showed jurors a letter to her mother from Lazarus that put, was postmarked August 6, 1985, and in it, Lazarus told Mrs. Rutten, quote, I'm truly in love with John, and the past year has really torn me up. I wish it didn't end the way it did, and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision. So again, kind of more important than just some guy you knew in college, lady. To back up their theory, prosecutors called their star witness, the man everyone had been waiting 25 years to hear speak publicly for the first time, John Rutten. He testifies that Lazarus was so upset she cried and begged him not to get married. They had sex that day, he says, but he still went through with his wedding just weeks later. What was your understanding of the relationship? Deputy District Attorney Shannon Presby asked. John said, we were good friends. We saw each other on and off, and on some of those occasions, we had sexual intercourse. He said he had put a blanket over his wife's face, called 911, and made himself available to police for interviews. But he never lived in the condo again. He quit his job and moved out of Los Angeles. He said he was later assured by a homicide detective that Lazarus was not a suspect and that his wife was most likely killed by burglars. He went on to live with his parents in San Diego, and in 1989, he made contact with Lazarus again and met up with her in Hawaii. When he moved back to Los Angeles area the next year, he said he contacted her and they had sex again at least twice. In those times when you saw the defendant, did she ever ask about Sherry's death? Asked Presby. No, said John. The panel of eight women and four men found Lazarus guilty after little more than a day. A court reporter present recalled that, quote, although I have not spoken to anyone directly, it's my personal belief that Lazarus's family still strongly believes in her innocence. I suspect everyone in Lazarus's family who loves Stephanie are devastated by the jury's decision. Her mother, Carol, who was at every single pretrial hearing that I attended, her siblings, Stephen and Judy, her in-laws, and many close friends who stopped their lives to attend every day of the month-long trial and her husband, Scott Young, an LAPD detective assigned to the Van Nuys station who blew kisses to Lazarus after her former lover testified. I can't imagine how he can return to work. It must have been an awkward, stressful situation. And then there's Lazarus's and Young's five-year-old daughter, believed to have been abducted from Russia, who hasn't seen her mother since the arrest. 
Los Angeles County prosecutors asked Superior Court Judge Robert J. Perry to sentence Lazarus to at least 27 years behind bars before she is eligible for parole, and she was. She is now incarcerated at Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. In June 2015, a panel of three judges heard an oral argument of an appeal, but unanimously they upheld Lazarus' conviction about a month later. Detective Mayer emphatically denied Nels Rasmussen told him that Sherry was having a problem with John Rutten's ex-girlfriend, but he did admit her name came up during his investigation months after Sherry's murder, and he felt there was no sufficient reason to question her. He also firmly denies accusations that he did not interview key witnesses. Jennifer Francis, the criminalist who tested the saliva back in 2004, said the Rasmussen case was not the only one in which she believed DNA evidence was purposely ignored by the department. The Rasmussens in 2010 filed a civil lawsuit against the city. The LAPD, Rutten, who was named only as an indispensable party without any specific claims, and Lazarus as well as 100 does. They alleged that the cover-up, including the act of allowing Lazarus to periodically review the case file and the LAPD's hostility towards them, starting on the night after her murder and continuing when they pressed the Lazarus claim throughout the 1990s, amounted to a violation of their civil rights, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and fraudulent concealment. They further alleged wrongful death against Lazarus. It was dismissed. The appellate court upheld the suit's dismissal on those grounds, holding that the Rasmussen's time to sue was limited once they broke off contact with the LAPD in 1998. The last year they could have thus filed suit was 2000. The California Supreme Court declined to hear the case in March 2013. After the trial, Nels Rasmussen said, I think John wanted to save his own ass. I never thought John had anything to do with it, but he knows more than he said or admitted to. That bothered me, and it bothers me today. John could have helped more than he did, but he wouldn't talk. If John would have backed me up just a little when I was saying they needed to talk to Stephanie, I think the story would have been different. In John's victim impact statement, he said, quote, Sherry Rasmussen had an impact on so many people, and I was so proud she agreed to be my wife. My heart still races when I look at her pictures, but Sherry was extraordinary more for who she was than the way she looked. The Rasmussens have treated me as a son and a brother, and contemplating their profound grief that she met her death because she met me and married me brings me to my knees. Her mother, Loretta, said, you never get over it. You only learn to live with it. And Nell said, we will feel that loss until we leave this earth. So my feeling is, is that, of course, Stephanie is guilty. I mean, how do you argue that evidence, that DNA evidence? And based on, you know, Jennifer Francis' comments, and just the history of the LAPD in general, there does seem to be quite a bit of cover-up going on, uh, is my personal opinion. And I do think while John didn't have anything to do with the murder, I think he was embarrassed and probably wanted to protect his own reputation because he led this woman on, I mean, pure and simple. If, if you're saying that I'm marrying this other person and then you go to this woman's house and she's begging you not to do it and then you have sex with her, I mean, what kind of message does that send? So, again, while I don't think he's guilty, John's kind of a scumbag. And, again, if you have any doubts about the DNA evidence, I would just look at that interrogation video. I mean, it has guilty stamped all over her face. I'll post a few other pictures as well of her in trial for sentencing and you can, I mean, her eyes are just cuckoo bananas.
for something beautiful. It's a very, very, very sad case. Um, again, Sherry was sounded like an absolutely amazing woman, super intelligent and driven, and it's just devastatingly sad that she, her life was ended so young. I think she was 20, 29 years old at the time of her death, which is one year younger than me, so pretty alarming to think about. But as far as something beautiful, I chose this week the Aztec Secret Indian Healing Clay. And if you saw, I'll post a picture, of course, but you may recognize the packaging because it's sold in all different kinds of places. I mean, anywhere from like Target to uh, Urban Outfitters to Walmart. So Amazon as well. So I think that you can really find it almost anywhere. But Aztec Secret Indian Healing Clay is a bentonite clay from Death Valley, California, where it is sun-dried for up to six months in temperatures that sometimes reach 134 degrees Fahrenheit. It was founded in 1986, which is kind of odd. That's the, the same year that Sherry was murdered, but this was founded by an Indiana native named Mary Roman. She died in 2012, and her daughter Denise and son Patrick now run the business, at least according to records. It's interesting. There's actually an article on Vox where the uh, author sort of researched the company because this is this is one of those products that I would consider sort of like a cult favorite. Um, so I think she wanted to find out a little bit more about their history. And, you know, these days, beauty companies, like that's a huge part of their branding. So uh, she found their website and you can find it too, but it's super old, probably hasn't been updated much since 1986. And um, there's really little detail. She actually tried to call the owners and someone kept answering and saying, you know, Susan is uh, unavailable. She's traveling. So we have no idea who Susan is. We don't know where she's always traveling to, but um, alas. The website does mention, though, that clays have been used for centuries to beautify and refresh when used as a facial mask. The combination with apple cider vinegar, which is the preferred method, and that's how um, the how it's instructed when you do use this product, as I mentioned, dates back to a southern French priest of the 19th, excuse me, 16th century, so long, long, long time ago. Um, one thing to note, though, is that according to board-certified dermatologist Mona Gahara, you might want to think twice before putting it on during the dry season. And this is really just because it is a bit drying. So I think this is a great treatment for especially oily skin or if you're just feeling, you know, kind of clogged up and wanting to um, treat sort of problematic acne or breakouts, things like that. But um, just be aware, I think if you have extra dry or sensitive skin, you may want to uh, skip this one. But I'm a huge fan. You basically, you know, mix maybe what, two, I would say two tablespoons of the clay and then maybe a tablespoon of the apple cider vinegar, depending on how thick you want the uh, paste essentially to, to feel. So, but obviously you can kind of make it what you want, but um, a little goes a long way, I will say that. So the value is absolutely there. And then, you know, leave it until it dries. And again, that's going to depend on how thick the paste is. But I would say, you know, this is not like a quick 10-minute mask, like from start to finish, um, including the fact that it brings, you know, all the circulation to your face and you're going to have like a red face uh, for at least maybe 30 minutes. This is probably one of those Saturday, Sunday you know, self-care masks that's going to take maybe an hour. Um, but very well worth it. Again, not something I would do constantly because of the drying aspect of it, but but definitely something to include in your regimen and is very um, wallet friendly, which these days, you know, who can, who doesn't want that? So 
highly recommend. I'll post a picture of it on the Instagram as well as the Facebook. So I hope you enjoy. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening to episode three of Crime and Beauty. I am uh, working on an episode for number four that is more local to where I am, which is Chicago. So it's a case that's very interesting, and I hope you'll tune in for that. But in the meantime, to follow Crime and Beauty, visit us on Instagram at crimeandbeauty.podcast, on Facebook at crimeandbeautypodcast, or at crimeandbeauty.podbean.com. As I said, please rate and review on whatever platform you're using. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Audible, etc. And feel free to shoot me an email. I'd love to hear your feedback or if you have any case suggestions. And that is crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, stay beautiful.